Good morning, everyone. Um, our subject this morning, our title this morning is Accounting for Grace. Accounting for Grace. Now, um, we're on the brink, of course, of Easter, uh, the most important season in the Christian calendar. And Easter describes how God rescues humanity, how he cleanses us, he, how he forgives us, and gives us a new life that is eternal. It's the most uh, wonderful rescue plan ever conceived. And the Apostle Paul has given it a name. He calls it in Acts 20 and 24, and a number, number of other places, he describes it as the gospel of God's grace. And that's a great name because this rescue plan is 100% about grace. And uh, Paul, you know, was so in awe of grace that he was always mentioning it. And if you actually look at the 13 letters attributed to Paul in the New Testament, you will find that he never gets beyond the second sentence of every one of those letters before he mentions the wonder of grace. It was central, as far as Paul was concerned, it was central to understanding what Easter and the Gospel are all about. Now, having given God's rescue plan, this Gospel of grace, such a positive introduction, uh, I have a bit of a confession to make to you this morning. And it's this. See, I'm an, I'm an accountant by trade, and the more I read the gospel of God's grace in the scriptures, the more difficulty I have. Why? Well, in the accounting world in which I've been brought up, it's important that everything adds up. You know, every debit must have a credit, otherwise uh, the books won't balance. But when I bring these very sensible principles to bear on the gospel of grace, I find something most disconcerting to us accountants. Namely, that every debit doesn't seem to have a credit. Or to put it another way, the whole idea of grace just doesn't seem to add up. Hence the title of this morning's message, Accounting for Grace. So although I'm doing the preaching this morning, I may have to call upon your help in getting through this topic. See, I reckon, notice my linear language there, even reckon uh, is an accounting term, I reckon that of all Jesus' disciples, the one who had most, the one who most had my type of accounting figures bias was Peter. Now, you could argue that it was Judas because he was voted to be the group's treasurer, but I would rather associate myself with Peter than with Judas for obvious reasons. Now, Peter definitely liked figures. 
Uh, he was a man after my own heart in that respect. And do you remember when he, uh, when Jesus told the disciples to cut, they hadn't caught any fish, and he told them to cast out their nets over the other side of the boat, so just what, this last time, and they'd caught nothing. And uh, when Peter and his mates hauled in the catch, this is recorded in John 21 and verse 11, we read that they had netted 153 fish. Not 150, not 200, no, 153. Now, presumably, to be that precise, Peter must have counted them. It was Peter, again, who in Matthew 18 and verse 21 tried to get Jesus to come up with a sort of accounting formula for forgiveness. Do you remember that? He said, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Is is that a good number? See, Peter thought that he was being generous here because the rabbis of the day suggested that uh, the maximum number of times uh, one might be expected to forgive was three. So he was being pretty generous. However, Jesus uh, replied to Peter and he said this. No, not seven times, Peter, but 77 times. In fact, some manuscripts uh, have seven times 70. So whether Jesus said 77 times or 490 times is beside the point. Jesus was actually pointing out that you can't use a calculator, Peter, to determine forgiveness. Now that's really irritating for Peter and for us accountants. Now if this isn't confusing enough, we are then faced with the story in John chapter 12. And in this story, there is a dinner being held in Jesus' honour, and we are told that Mary, now that's the Mary of Mary and Martha fame, she took a whole pint, now can you imagine this, a whole pint of very expensive perfume, and actually we're told that it was the perfume uh, nard, and she poured it all over Jesus' feet. And historians tell us, you know, that a pint of nard which had to be harvested in the Himalayas would have been worth about £40,000 today. Think about that. And the accountant in me, again, couldn't resist working out that £40,000 would buy you about 30,000 millilitres of Chanel No. 5. I mean, it's that... Extravagant. Was there any need for that level of extravagance? See, even Judas, who was attending this particular dinner, pointed out that this perfume could have been sold and the money used to help the poor. And here was all this expensive fragrance just being poured over and running all over the dirty floor. This surely is wastefulness in the extreme. But strangely, 
Jesus does not rebuke Mary, but actually encourages her. And he uh, he says to Judas in verse 7 and verse 8, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Mm. See, are you beginning to see my point about the gospel of grace failing to add up? See, I'm trying to appeal to your good sense of fairness and sound accounting principles here, so bear with me. There are so many examples that I could bring you this morning. Let's read from Matthew 18, verse 12 to 14. What do you think, this is Jesus speaking, what do you think, if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on... 99 on the hills and go and look for the one that had wandered off and if he finds it I tell you the truth he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off again have you ever thought about the logic of this story I appeal to your good sense here surely with all due reverence and respect Jesus is mistaken. See, if the shepherd leaves the 99 sheep unprotected to go and find the one that had strayed, it is highly likely, in fact probable, that he will return to find that either rustlers or wolves would have taken or killed a large proportion of the remaining flock. Am I right or am I right? I don't get it. Am I missing the point here, friends? See, we could go through a number of examples like these which proved to any sound principles of logic or accounting that this gospel of grace is flawed in its thinking. So I'm just going to take one more example. One of many I could take and then rest my case. Let's go to Matthew chapter 20. And verse 1 to 16. And let's read this together. For the kingdom of God is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into the vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go to my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. And so they they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and he did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, said one of them. So he said to them, you also go into my work, into my vineyard and work. Now when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and received a denarius. So when those who came, when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. 
These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, friend, he said, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for one denarius? Take your pay and go. Don't I have the right to do what I want to do with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Now, you know, in Palestine during the harvest season, the temperature is often above 100 degrees. And it was a very hectic and demanding time and there was a very short window between uh, the time when you had to pick the grapes and the time uh, when the bad weather came in and the harvest would have been ruined. <clears throat> so in this particular story, everybody seemed happy and then it was time for the wages to be paid out. And the workers who had stood around idly for most of the day and had been hired just for one hour they were paid first, and they received, surprisingly, a denarius. You know, and the same thing happened for those who had worked six hours and those that worked three hours, nine hours, sorry. So then it was the turn of the workers who had worked a full day, a 12-hour day. They'd slogged through the intense heat, and they came to the landowner thinking, wow, now, he must have had a good day today to be so generous. He has paid those who have worked only one hour or less, some of them. He'd paid them one denarius. So, and they can see their logical minds turning here, we've worked 12 hours, not one. So what will we receive? Probably, it seems that we're due 12 denarii, or at least... 10, anyway. But no, the landowner gave them one. How can that be right? See, the, the boss's actions here contradicted everything known about employee motivation and fair compensation. It was terrible economics, disastrous man management, plain and simple. What's going on here? So let's cut to the chase. What is Jesus teaching us in these parables about, particularly this one, about the seemingly uh, mathematically challenged landowner? Well, of course, if we try to understand this story on the basis of accounting or staff management, we will miss the point entirely. And this story, uh, like the others we touched upon this morning, are not supposed to make economic sense. It isn't supposed to add up. The first workers had counted up their hours, compared that total to those who came in at the end of the day and expected to be remunerated accordingly. And they, like Mr Accounting Face Roy Turner, had missed the point 
entirely. And all of these stories, and I'll take my tongue out of my cheek now, are pictures of grace. And grace cannot be calculated like a day's wages. You see, linear accounting types like me, and maybe uh, some of you, have to understand that grace has nothing to do with counting. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. See, if God did count our sins against us, if he did pay us according to what our sins earn, we'd all be in trouble. Let let me remind you of the accounting phrase in uh, Romans where it says, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages, here we go again, the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 3.23 and 6.23. And the whole point of grace is that that none of us get paid according to our merit. It's a free gift, thank goodness for that. The actions of the landowner here representing God, are not based on accounting or mathematics, but instead on his all-encompassing, unconditional love. So to all you accounting types out there, we are being told that the key to understanding the nonsensical mathematics of the gospel is the amazing grace-filled love of God. See, many in the church are still baffled by grace because it goes against our mental calculators that say a price must be paid for our sin. And you are right there, but we need to be reminded that a price was paid on the cross of Calvary, which we shall be looking at next week. Just add this in. Friends, I have to warn you that in the modern church, uh, there are still a lot of people, a lot of what I would call uh, bean counters. People who say they believe in grace, but in practice they operate under the law. And these people, they want everyone to conform, to look alike, to talk alike, to act alike, and to believe alike, just the way that they do. And they have a name, and they are called grace killers. Friends, don't be intimidated by them. Now, let me finish this morning by looking at the story in John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. Now this is the story where Jesus is teaching in the temple courts when the service is interrupted by a group of Pharisees dragging a woman caught in adultery. 
Now, adultery takes two, of course, but the woman stands alone before Jesus. That's, that's another story. And John makes clear that the accusers have less interest in punishing a crime than in setting a trap for Jesus. And it is quite, actually quite a clever trap. See, Moses' law specifies death by stoning for adultery. That's the law of Moses. Yet Romans, Roman law forbids the Jews from carrying out any executions. Will Jesus obey Rome or will he obey Moses? Or will he, uh, notorious for his mercy, find a way to let this adulteress off the hook? If he does, he will have to defy Moses' law before a crowd assembled in the very courts of the temple. That would be a very difficult thing to do. All eyes were fixed at this point upon Jesus. What would he do? What would he say? And at that moment, Jesus does something he has never done before. He bends down and he writes. He writes in the sand with his finger. And the only time the Gospels record Jesus writing anything is this little passage. And interesting that the medium that he chose to record his only written words on was sand. Knowing that the footsteps and the weather, the wind and the rain would soon erase what he had written. We don't know what he wrote, but could, he, could it be that he actually began to list one by one various sins? I think that's a distinct possibility. You know, pride, adultery, greed, lust, gossip, and each time he writes a word, a few more Pharisees leave the scene. And those in the crowd, no doubt, see two categories of people in this drama. They see the guilty woman and the righteous accusers, who are, after all, religious professionals. But when Jesus speaks, he demolishes one of those categories. He says, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And one by one, they all slink away. And Jesus then says to the woman, woman, where are they? Has, it, has no one accused you? And she replied, well, no, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go and leave your life of sin. What's happening here? Well, in a brilliant stroke, Jesus replaces the two assumed categories, which were some were righteous and some were guilty. That's what the people thought. Some were righteous and some were guilty. And he replaces, does Jesus, those two categories with two completely different characters. 
Sinners who admit their sinners and sinners who deny their sinners. The woman, you see, admitted her guilt and with empty hands she could receive the gift of grace. But the bean-counting Pharisees denied their sin, repressed their guilt, and thus their hands were full of self-righteousness and pride, unable to receive the free gift of grace. And if I'm totally honest, I guess that sadly I often associate myself more with the accusers in this story than the accused. I deny far more than I confess. You know, how about you? You see, if I've understood this story correctly, the sinful woman is the one who is nearest the kingdom of God. And I, we, can only advance in the kingdom if I, we, become like that woman, repentant, humbled and without excuse, our palms empty and open to receive God's Grace. Grace cannot be bought, friends. Grace cannot be earned because God's accounting system doesn't work, fortunately, like ours. Our accounting system will clearly show that we have far more debits than credits. God doesn't love us because we are good. God loves us because God is good. Amen.